and root to burrow. Something to dig. Uh, but burrow like a B O R O U G H. Okay, okay. <laughs> I think burrow like a like chipmunk. <laughs> <laughs> um, Santa Claus is digging a hole. <laughs> <laughs> Merry Christmas and welcome back to Reason Together podcast, the uh, podcast for Christians who think about stuff. And I'm Daniel Fox, your host here with my great friend Thomas Balzamo and looking forward to uh, today's conversation. How are you, Tom? Ho, ho, ho. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh... <laughs> I all right. I'm, I'm not enough. feeling the best, so <clears throat> you might hear it in my voice a little bit. I hope it's not too off-putting to our listeners, but there's been something going around here, and yes, I kind of yeah. got hit with it twice. So I'm doing okay otherwise. If I if if I have to have like a coughing fit here, we might have to edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think our listeners want to hear that, but uh, I'm doing well. How are you doing? Doing well. Doing very well. Yep. Um, keeping busy and, uh, loving life. And so <laughs> going, yeah, good. going well. Yes. Um, good. Well, maybe you need a good cold right now. That's yes. what you need just to just kind of rain on that parade. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> so that, cause misery loves company and, and I need you to have a cold right now. So <laughs> hey, <laughs> before sob together. Yeah. Before we jump into our uh, questions, two things. Number one, I want to thank uh, all of our patrons who have signed up at patreon.com slash reason together. Thank you so much for your investment throughout the year and what you give. We don't take that lightly. Um, and how you invest in what we do here and uh, enable us to pay the bills and more. And uh, thank you so much for that. And if you're not a, a supporter, but you'd like to be, you can go to patreon.com slash reason together, sign up for one of those tier levels there. The elite level gets you a, a free uh, podcast t-shirt and uh, access to the, uh, to the patron only uh, feed there or the, uh, chat, uh, chats. And, um, so we, uh, encourage you to look at that, but even if you're just listening, feel free to give us a five-star review on iTunes. That would be fantastic. We love feedback. Uh, if you've got a thought about what we're talking about or even something totally unrelated, just something that crosses your mind and you think, you know, I'd like to hear those guys batted around a uh, reason together podcast at gmail.com. That's reason together podcast at gmail.com. So whether I just was not paying attention very well just there or entered a slight coma, I know not, but I I didn't catch it. Did you happen to mention the perk of the after show bonus episode? Oh, you know, I, I skipped right over that. No, that's right. If you're an elite patron, you also get the after show, which is a second show every time we record. Not quite as long, maybe a little bit more laid back, another conversation, more content, and uh so we've got several elite patrons and uh, and just thankful for all of our patrons, all of our listeners, and the feedback that you give. Before we jump into uh, our conversation for today, Tom, and just start picking things off the list, um, I was wondering, what is there is there one gift that you would recommend to all of our listeners? You say, if 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 I if you could buy them something, what would it be? 
If I could buy them something? Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. If you could buy them something, something that you would want them to have or you'd want them to get from someone else. (laughs) Boy, there's so many ways I could go with that. I'm wondering if this is like, if you're like, like doing like a volleyball set here for me to spike in with saying you need to buy a Reason Together t-shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, actually, that's not what I was doing, but that, that's a good uh, thought. Or, or do you really want like, what would what, I buy? What, what one piece listeners? of fashionable attire uh, would would you want our listeners to wear to their Christmas and New Year's gatherings? <laughs> um, okay. Well, you've narrowed it down now subtly, I might add, to attire. Yeah, yeah, yeah fashionable um, attire. Actually, that was a total pitch for our uh, our podcast t-shirts okay. there. Um, but no, back to the original question. Um, just like what what kind of a just a, a gift that you feel like? I mean, everybody ought to have one of these. Oh man, I, I, a good study Bible would be one. Mm. Um, either either print or digital. Um, but something with uh, a sufficient amount of study helps in it to help sort of prompt your your thinking and your study as you read through scripture. Because you don't have to go far. That's the convenience of a study Bible. You don't have to go far to find uh, good contextual cross-references mm-hmm. and commentary because it's often right there. Um, I'm thinking that, uh, that's a convenient thing. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say is a Leatherman, like a good multi-tool. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Okay. Good. Good. Well, that's almost like the same thing in two different spheres. A multi-tool, like a study Bible, sort of like your spiritual multi-tool yeah. in a way. Um, yeah, sure. I've heard uh, good things about, I want to say maybe it's the KJV study Bible. Maybe, I think that just might be the name of it. I know it sounds really um, unoriginal. Uh, maybe I'm not remembering the title correctly. I, I don't have one, but I've heard good things about it. Um, there's a life application study Bible. Mm-hmm. I've heard of that uh, one. Heard of that one. Good things I've about that good, one too. I've heard real good things about that one. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Um, I know I asked the question and I'm not honestly sure how I would answer it exactly. Um, what, uh, what one thing I would want for people, it'd probably be a book of some sort. Um, but I've been, been in a, in a few books recently and really enjoying them, but, um, I don't know that I could land on on one quite yet. So I don't know if I think of something, I'll, I'll say it later, but. Okay. Okay. You've got a number of things on our list. Um, some may just be fun. Um, others, uh, a question that we need to bounce around. Yeah. Well, I assure you, even the fun ones, there is a purpose to them all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, well, shoot. Okay. So dude, <laughs> do you, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> that, that's the setup to this conversation because okay. I okay. was reading. <clears throat> I got. I got an. I, I subscribed to some things by email, and I got this article that I thought was fascinating. And I will try to include it in the show notes. Okay, but it has to do with the etymology and the history of the word "dude." Um, yeah, are you familiar? Are you familiar with this? I've heard over the years, like, where does that word come from? And I've heard, you know, the preposterous or whatever. And so I guess I've questioned, does anybody, well, actually a son just recently asked me that, one of my sons. And I said, uh, I was maybe kind of shooting from the hip and I said, I would think it would, might have reference back to 
um, maybe a cowboy term or a ranch term, like a like a dude ranch or something like that. But I don't know. Is, is there something uh, authoritative out there that tells the well etymology? As with uh, often with, as with etymology, the way it goes is there's nothing super authoritative in every case. You can kind of almost guesstimate sometimes the use of a word and sort of find its public use in print materials from ages ago and see how it was used and what it referenced. And that's sort of how oftentimes etymologists will take a track on where a word comes from, combined with looking at the actual structure of the word uh, and the languages that were used in its day and so on. Mm -hmm. And the word dude believe it or not is it could it's almost the opposite of the concept that you were bringing up about like a cowboy or someone on a ranch or someone out in the west yes the, I think the I know prevailing where you're theory go. yeah yeah the prevailing theory is the opposite so i believe it could be traced back to a poem written by if i remember right in the article the man's name was uh, robert sale and this okay. would have been in the mid to late 1800s he writes a poem referencing uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to, to give you a little more history on this, <clears throat> a Yankee was someone from New England. And strangely, they were kind of the original American rednecks. Oh, really? Um, yeah. Many people don't know this, <laughs> but originally people from New England <clears throat> were kind of country bumpkins. And they were sort of known for their ingenuity and in being able to cobble together junk things into something useful and make do with the, the things they had on hand, what we might today call a redneck fix or a redneck yeah. solution. Mm-hmm. Um, though they, they might not have looked or sounded or talked like the rednecks of today, they were the original rednecks in this sense. They were the country bumpkins. Hmm. They weren't the refined hoi polloi. They weren't the metropolitan type people that you would have found in places like New York or Philadelphia or Boston. So the concept uh, in this man's poem was about a, a Yankee, someone who's a country bumpkin, and, and, and attempting to be or pretending to be someone who is more fanciful, more <clears throat> what we might today describe as a hipster, someone more metropolitan than he, than, than he is. And he would stick a feather in his cap, right? And call it macaroni, according to the Yankee Doodle poem. <clears throat> but, <laughs> um, and, and, and from my understanding of it is that the macaronis, that was a term for someone who is sort of the culturally elite hoi polloi kind of guy, the fancy oh. young man. Um, so, so that's why you see a Yankee, a Yankee sticking a feather in his cap, you know, almost wistfully pretending to be a hipster type guy, um, is is a dandy. It's kind of a joke. It's kind of a fanciful thing. So Yankee doodle dandy was the concept, uh, that I'm describing here of of Mm -hmm. a country bumpkin attempting to be some, some metropolitan guy. Okay. And eventually Robert Sale takes this concept and uses it in his poem, referring to this young metropolitan man as dudish or a dude. (laughs) Not the country bumpkin trying to be him, but the actual metropolitan dandy is the dude. Right. Or is is dudish. Okay. 
Yeah. So, and, and I'm probably missing details from the articles, but, but I'll link it so you can read it for yourself. But the original concept of dude, according to a few uh, etymologists that have done the work on this, is that it, it was like a metropolitan, soft-handed kind of, you know, fancy guy. That was a dude. Mm-hmm. And, and as industrialization happened and more people um, began, more men began to dress modern, we might say, rather mm-hmm. as opposed to being a country bumpkin, dude became synonymous with man. <clears throat> hmm. And now, today, dude, the way it's used culturally, refers to just a real manly man, right? Well, I mean, I th- nowadays, I guess I just feel like it's this... Um- it's this, well, actually not nowadays, it, it's, it's a generation past now, but in my youth, it seemed more like that's, that's the, it was the surfer word. Dude. Yeah. Like it was almost filler. Um, yeah. Like, whoa. Well, or, yeah. And that's a good point you bring out because what it does is it shines some light on the fact that a single word can really change in how it's used over time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think it's super interesting to see how it literally meant the opposite of what we, of what it connotes now, you know, and, and everything in between it's had evolutions in between then and now of how it's been used. And the same day that I read this article, uh, we were doing our family devotions in first Samuel. We, part of our family devotions is that we read through the Bible together and we were in first Samuel two, uh, and verse 25 and, uh, you can look it up if you wish. The uh, the story is there about Eli and his sons, uh, Hophni and Phineas. which if you remember the story, they were really rotten guys, Hophni and Phineas. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the things that they did were reprehensible by any measure. And you find in verse 25, uh, of First Samuel two, it says, "If one man sin against another, then judge uh, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against the Lord, who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because the Lord would slay them." And and the reason why I found it interesting that we read this verse the same day I read this article about the word dude is because there is a word slash phrase in this verse that when you read it, it sounds like one thing, but it's actually another because of the way that words and languages change over time. So like in the last phrase there where it says that they hearkened not unto the voice of their father because the Lord would slay them. In modern English today, that sort of connotes the idea that the Lord is planning here at, at, the Lord is going to, at some point here in the future, slay them. He would slay them. Um, you, you know what I mean? It, it reads like a like a narrative where the writer is saying, the Lord is about to slay these men. Uh-huh, like a future tense. Right. Um, but that's actually Old English, right? The word would in Old English meant something different in this use. It's the idea that the Lord desired to slay them. Interestingly, the New King James Version captures that, uh, where it says, I think it uses the word desired. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is the actual word that's used there. It's, it's, it, it has to do with a willful desire that the Lord has to slay these men, <clears throat> uh, presumably for, 
for what they've done. Uh, mm-hmm. They were unrepentant, unregenerate, I believe, just reprehensible men. And the Lord set his mind towards slaying these men. It was part of his plan here to deliberately slay these men. Um, so that's why I say that words change over time. And it's not to say that the King James is in error here. It's not to say that it's wrong. Hmm. It's just that when this, when the King James was translated, uh, that was the way they spoke. And that just isn't the way that people speak now. Mm -hmm. So you could get the wrong idea from this word would here in verse 25, unless you did a little reading under the surface here to see, uh, that this actually means God desired to slay them. Mm-hmm. Not that he was just going to at some point in the future slay them, mm-hmm. but he had a willful desire to. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And, and, and I've come it across like a, a number- sounds like a helping verb in modern English, you're saying, but- uh, is, Yeah, yeah. and I'm is- trying to, uh, yeah, and, and I'm trying not to be too complicated with it, but yeah, that's that's the idea, is that this this no longer means the same thing. And there's a number of examples like that um, that they, they weren't, they're not errors. They're just spoken in a way that people don't speak anymore. And if we're not careful, we miss things. Mm-hmm. All that from the word dude. Dude. <laughs> dude. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And you see that uh, in the new Testament, I can recall that I'm sure there's actually several instances, uh, in, in the, you know, King James translation, where once you know that, you see it. Uh, if any man uh, willeth to do his will, you know, if any man desires to do his, di- uh, you know, to do his desire, God's desire, um, you'll see that concept of will and would as a, as a desire um, yeah. and intent. Yeah. All right. What else we got? Well, that uh, actually kind of leads into uh, another question that's on the list. Okay. Because in in that passage in First Samuel, you, you see God is is desirous to slay these men, mm-hmm. like He actually wants to, um, is what it means there. In some way, you could you could ask, was God affected by what these men did? Like, did it did it change something in Him um, to where He now desired to slay these men? Like, did He not have that desire before? And then they they do these horrible things, and now all of a sudden he has a desire to slay them. And and I guess the question it brings up is is about God's emotions. So mm. the question I have on the list is: Are God's emotions anthropomorphisms? And to, let me explain the question further before yeah. we try yeah. to, to delve mm-hmm. into it, because there are some people who believe that any reference to God having an emotion is an anthropomorphism. And if you don't know what an anthropomorphism is, <clears throat> it's just describing something that's not human as if it were human. If I could put it simply. Right. Yep. Giving attributes, uh, human attributes to something to, right. for us to better understand it. Right. And, and there are some who believe that any any reference to an emotion of God is an anthropomorphism, meaning he didn't actually have an emotion there. It just... It's written in such a way to appear to us that he had an emotion because it's the only way we'll understand it. Now, there are some merits to that argument, though I, I don't think it's entirely correct. Um, 
because it, it and and their argument can I, really can comes I pause from here just a second yeah uh, to explain to our listeners a little bit more if they're confused on the term anthropomorphic for instance when um, when we read in scripture it says the eyes of the lord run to and fro throughout the earth or the the you know the arm of the lord the is strong lord to is strong. save you know his his hand does this well god is a spirit so he technically doesn't have an arm or a hand right. or eyes or you know nostrils but they're but they're ways of communicating to us um, in a human-like way, or giving him a um, uh, the idea of a body, because we 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 relate to that and we understand it, and it puts it in a way that certainly is very right on our level as human beings that we understand that. And I would say maybe it's different, distinct from personification and that it goes beyond making him a person, but giving mm-hmm. it a very human body uh, concept. Yeah, yeah, and, and I I would hope that our listeners are familiar too with the idea that God doesn't change. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, the fancy theological term for that is immutability. He's immutable. Uh, he cannot be changed. Nothing about him can be changed. <clears throat> and, uh, the way that, that pastor Dietrich would always say it is that if, if God could, could change, that means he could get either better or worse. And if he got better, that means he wasn't good to begin with. And if it got worse, that means he's not good anymore, uh, which is a great short and succinct way of explaining immutability. But the question really has to do with if if I can behave in such a way, like for instance, Hophni and Phineas, if I could behave in such a way that it affects God emotionally to where it changes his emotion from happy to grieving or to angry, Right. How does that jive with the concept of immutability? If God is subject, if his emotions are subject to fluctuation based on what men do. Yeah, um, good. There's a couple things I think you need to parse out there. Um, And one is that just because God uh, is immutable means uh, his his very nature will never change. Um, It doesn't mean that, uh, you know, I think... (laughs) Like again, in a human way, if I'm, uh, you know, walking straight and I suddenly turn right, have I changed direction? Yes. Am I any different? No. It's just it's just the route somewhere. If I um, if I am doing one thing and I stop to do another thing, am I changing in my nature? Am I? And they say, oh, you've changed. Something about you has changed. No, I'm just <laughs> changing my action. Um, yeah. So we do have to detach you know, his, his actions from his nature in the sense that I know everything he does is consistent with who he is, but it doesn't mean that he has changed in his nature simply because he does this action here and this action there. And he acts upon his, you know, he's always, he's always acting consistent with himself. Uh, So the question is, is he in any way uh, denying or contradicting himself? That would be a change in God. Um, and then to tie it immediately to emotions, when we say he desired to do something, that might be a little far, though we see it as an emotion. Um, you know, to say, does God respond to things? Meaning, the, the the way he has things designed. If you you know, if you sin, there is a consequence. Does that mean that somehow he? you know, his, his emotions were subject to our actions. No, our actions were subject to his whole design and he, we're going to be judged. And his desire is going to be to judge the unrepentant wicked. Um, 
it doesn't mean there's any change in him at all. In fact, that just confirms really that he's the same, that, that, that he's consistent with exactly who he is. <clears throat> I think it's, it's fairly obvious, I would hope, that immutability taken to its extreme ulti- ultimately leaves God frozen in time and space. <laughs> um, he can't do or think or anything. He can't move. He can't change uh, anything about uh, how he interacts with with mankind. You know what I mean? It'd be oh, so much less of what he actually is if we said, no, he always has to do this all the time. Well, he's, well I, he's- I guess I think of like ultimate or extreme immutability is almost like wet concrete that sets until it's completely solid. Well, now it can't change at all. It can't do anything. It's it's almost it's almost at an impasse, and, and and I think that's why if you if you take the immutability of God to its extreme, then he can't have any emotion, right? He can't mm. feel compassion for lost sinners. You know what I mean? He can't he can't get angry at the wicked every day. <laughs> you know he can't do anything because that would wreck his immutability, so to speak. So I think I think the the folks who think that God's emotions are purely anthropomorphic, they're taking immutability too far. Right. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, but at the same time, I think there is something to be said for the fact that God is not going to be subject to emotional change. Meaning, if if He expresses an emotion, either anger at my sin or compassion for my loss or love toward me, if he feels any emotion toward me, it's going to be his deliberate choice to. Mm-hmm. It's not going to yeah. be that he was subject to me in some way. That that Hophni sure. and Phineas oh, right. sing, single-handedly, right, went out controlled and controlled God. Right. And right. and just made his entire day unhappy and just ruined his day. Well, well no. Um, that's that's the idea of open theism, if I'm not mistaken. Where where God essentially is just always reacting to mankind, mm, mm. never really knows what he's going to do, and then, oh, he sinned today. Oh, so now I have to do this. Then, yeah, <laughs> yeah, not, yeah. That's that's not accurate. But the opposite extreme of taking immutability too far is deism. I think that that effectively God is is not affected or at passive all. Passive and uninvolved. He's or- passive and uninvolved. And, and I um, think the correct answer is somewhere in the middle, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> yeah. Um, with yeah, with um, the concept of emotions, a couple of things. Number one, is it an anthropomorphism? I would push back against that. Number one, I think anthropomorphism to me, anyway, it seems to be more uh, concrete bodily um, uh, references. But your emotions is kind of on a different level. It's it's um, I don't know if I'd say it's metaphysical, but it's um, um, you know when we say God has an arm, okay, well he's a spirit. But to say we have emotions, um, or, or, or you know we have emotions, and therefore to say God has emotions, that's anthropomorphism. Well, or it could be because we're made in the image of God, um, and so there's a part of us that's like Him now. Where we stray again is by judging God by our perspective of how our emotions affect us. Right. We are overcome by emotion. We are sometimes dominated by emotion. We're swayed blindsided. by emotion. We're blinds. So we yeah. we oftentimes struggle to be in control of our emotions. 
well, that's yep. not true of God. God is the perfect balance. He's the perfect example. He is the uh, He is perfect in every way. So if He has emotions, they're always perfectly in order, and uh, and He's never obviously not in control of Himself or, yeah. or anything else. But well, we both have we both have emotions, both God and mankind. But we are often blindsided by ours. He is never blindsided right. by in a change in emotion. In our frail human constitution, we struggle with Yeah. That. And I believe he deliberately chooses his emotional response because he knows what man is going to do anyway. Um, whereas we have no such privilege. <laughs> so we often are caught off guard by incoming emotions. Um, so yeah, I, I, yeah, I think we're saying the same thing. Um, but yeah, I think, and by the way, to, to, to be, completely transparent. We're talking about a a doctrine that is often known as the impassibility of God. Hmm. Okay. What does that um, mean, impassibility? So so the idea of it's an old word. It's not used anymore. Well it is, but not very often. The idea of being influenced by passions. Um that the ancient mm-hmm. heathen gods, lowercase G of the Greek pantheon or the Roman pantheon could suddenly lose their temper at you or, or suddenly they're overcome <laughs> with affection that, that leads to lust. And now all of a sudden they're having an illegitimate relationship with some female God, lowercase G. Um, <clears throat> so, so the, the, the heathen gods were subject to passions and yeah. mood swings and fluctuations oh, and yeah. people feared them because of this. And there was no stability in pagan religions, but Which- God is not moved by passions. Yeah, which you have to say about the Greek gods and the whole uh, storyline there is it's so human. You can tell <laughs> you can tell its origin, its source, because it so mirrors our own feelings and our own faults and frailties. You see them in their own gods. Right. Um, very interesting. Yeah. And, and all that to say, we have to accept some form of impassibility of God. We have to accept it in some form, because otherwise it makes God too human. It makes his emotions too similar to ours. Um, Because I think there's great calm in the idea of God's impassibility, that I I, I have all of the assurances I need that he's not going to lose his temper at me the next time I sin and remove my salvation. In addition to the whole doctrine of eternal security, I can lump onto that the impassibility of God, that he's not going to be moved so much by my sin that he's going to respond and take away my salvation like some heathen God of old. Uh, he's not that way. And uh, well, and it, instead, Go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, but I think we have to balance the impassibility of God with the clear statements in scripture that do regard his emotion, mm-hmm. that, that Jesus was compassionate toward the multitudes, that he was moved when he saw them, mm-hmm. uh, that he was moved when he stood over Israel. He was he wept at the tomb of Lazarus. All these things were things Jesus did. And you could say, well, that was just his humanity, right? Because he's the yeah. God-man. But yet we're told yeah. that he is the express image of God. He's mm-hmm. the reflection of God. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that very much mirrors the compassion and emotion of God. So I think the answer is somewhere in between impassibility and passability. And that's a very good point that you make about uh, Jesus' humanity being the very example. Um, and, and of course, it goes down. This is, we, we state this so many times, but define the terms. When somebody yeah. says, do you believe in the impassibility of God? You say, well, what do you mean by that? You know, if right. you define impassibility as God has no emotions, no. 
uh, or if you define <laughs> it as, uh, you know, God is not overwhelmed by and controlled by his emotions. Yes. You know, it just, it, it wholly depends on what you're, what you're loading that term with. One, um, Parting thought on that, just for a study uh, for mm-hmm. our listeners, is to look at the Old um, Old Testament word "repent," um, being uh, from the word "nacham," which actually has uh, is connected to the idea of comfort. Believe it or not, we say, "Oh, God repented; He changed His mind. He was gonna do this, and He said, wait a minute, I think I'll change and do this.'" No, actually, it's not that. It's not like the metanoia of the mm-hmm. uh, of the New Testament. It's it's a different concept, and and re- you really kind of have to weave your mind into that. Really get to thinking on that what that means, but um, but be careful how you read that concept of God repenting. Yeah, that can be a deep well. Um. All right. Let's pause for a moment. Yeah. I was wondering if you could read something for us. Sure. That one of our listeners, <laughs> this was unsolic- unsolicited. I had no idea that James was going to do this. One of our patrons, James McGowan, uh-huh. he used AI or chat GPT to write a poem <laughs> about this podcast. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm Do you not want read- to read it. Yeah, sure. I've not read it before. So hopefully I'm smooth enough. I hope chat GPT puts some nice meter in it. I'm just going to tell you, I'm not one of those poetry guys that can handle the long form, almost like a sentence. I'm like, where's the poetry? I need like a really simple meter. That's got a nice lilt to it. I love that kind of poetry. But- Which uh, Side note, while I think of it, did you read my poem that I posted? Did I read that on the podcast? Salad doesn't want to be eaten. <laughs> no. <laughs> I didn't read that on the podcast? No, not that I remember. Okay. Well, Great now sense. now we're going to have to pause, okay? Yep, yep. Hold on, James. Your your chat GPT poem is coming. We have more important things to do at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> of course, my, my voice isn't great, so you'll have to forgive me. But uh, let's see here. I don't. Okay, I wrote this poem back in November. Uh, my wife, my wife went on a trip to Florida um, with the ladies from the church for a, a ladies retreat, and my wife always includes something green with most every meal. You know, like yep, a salad yep, or sure. cucumbers or green beans or whatever, <clears throat> which we of course consume without complaint. Um, we don't really mind it, but if she's not here to add green things, we we don't think of it in the same way she does. We don't prioritize it the same way she does. (laughs) Yes. Um, so I was driving home from work and this thought struck me. I was struck with the title first. So it's one of those poems where the title happens first and then you just write it later. Okay. The, the idea that a, a child is attempting to convince his mother that the salad he's eating is is sentient, yes. and it it is making continued efforts to avoid being consumed. Okay, so this this is this is salad doesn't want to be eaten. <clears throat> Mother, I know you want me to grow, and I'd much rather avoid a beaten. But what you don't know, and I intend to show, is that salad doesn't want to be eaten. <laughs> the lettuce sticks to the plate like glue. My fork can't poke it in place. When it finally works, the lettuce jerks and flicks dressing all over my face. (laughs) (laughs) Cherry tomatoes. Okay. I like hearing you laugh, dude. It's great. 
Cherry tomatoes are round and bouncy. They'd probably best stay at the store. They make a squeak when I try to fork them, and they dart out across the floor. (laughs) That's true. Red onions can't possibly be safe, and the research is intensive. That when things in nature don't want to be eaten, they try to smell offensive. (laughs) And not to mention avocados, either. They don't want to be eaten, I reckon. They secretly plotted to go from unripe to rotted in just under a second. (laughs) Cucumbers, peppers, spinach, and carrots, they've developed a secret power. They've concocted a trick where you can eat yourself sick and be hungry in less than an hour. (laughs) Vegetables have a mind of their own. My logic here can't be beaten. So don't be mistaken. Just replace them with bacon because salad doesn't want to be eaten. (laughs) Nice job, Tom. Yeah, take a bow. Yes. Well done. (laughs) Oh, that's good. That's good. Have you ever... Okay, a couple other real quick here. Have you ever heard of haikus? (laughs) Don't get me started on haikus. So if you're if you're a real liter- literature buff and you like the I guess this fancy for sort of poem I just pulled up one online uh, that said haikus are easy but sometimes they don't make sense refrigerator there you go <laughs> so there's your uh, there's your haiku for the day yeah um, I have no concept in my mind of how a haiku became a structural thing or in some way. <laughs> enjoyable it's, it, I, it's, I it sounds eastern i'm gonna guess maybe there's a different mindset behind it but uh, uh and i that's not that's no disparaging remark i'm just saying this the term haiku sounds eastern and they think differently so all right so are you ready for a chat gpt yes uh, poem here here we go uh mm-hmm. recent together podcast poem thank you james in a realm of thoughts where minds take flight two men named daniel and tom <laughs> unite With microphones poised and ideas aglow, they host a podcast to the world they show. Christians who ponder, who question and seek, find solace and wisdom in their voices unique. What's that mean? (laughs) Let's dive deep, they say with a knowing smile. Explore the unknown, mile after mile. It depends, their refrain, a harmonious tune, as discussions unfold neath the sun and the moon. Mysteries of faith they dissect and discuss in a world where certainty can sometimes be fuss. Daniel, thoughtful and introspective in thought, Tom, analytical ideas he has sought. Together they journey through topics profound with it depends as their compass (laughs) truth they expound. So if questions arise and beliefs intertwine, seek out these two minds, let their podcast align. For in pondering matters with insight they share, a tapestry of faith and reason is woven with care. Bravo. <laughs> Bravo. Thank you, chat GPT. Yep. I, I think my poem was better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Thank you, James, for doing that. That yeah. that I was wow. that I, I don't came know out of left had, field. I, I don't know how you had to feed that in, but uh that was pretty I good. asked him. I actually emailed him. I said, what what input did you put in there to get it to do that? And I think he told me, but I can't remember what it was, but I don't, I don't know that he remembered fully what he put in there, but <laughs> yeah, that's nice. what it spit out. Well, great. <laughs> wow. That, that might have to like, I don't, I don't know. That might have to be framed or something. <laughs> um, 
Okay, let's see. We've ooh, we've got about uh, about five, six, seven minutes uh, to wrap this up. Do you have another question you want to hit here? Huh. Um, I, I suppose this one could be a few minute discussion. Okay. Um, and it's kind of along the lines of what we talked about at the outset about words. Mm-hmm. Um. You're familiar with Webster's Dictionary, of course. Sure. Mm-hmm. Did you ever wonder where Webster got his definitions from? I assume, well, no. I mean, did I wonder? Well, maybe I have a little bit. You're talking about his definitions or his examples, his actual definitions? Yeah, like the, what the words actually mean. How did he know what they meant? Like, where did he get it from? Mm-hmm. Good question. Um, I don't know. I mean, I have I have an answer. I'm just curious to see what your answer would be. I don't know if he studied them out himself and as far as like essentially formulating the, the uh, explanations himself or to what degree he had a reference work behind him. Yeah. Well, I think that largely, and you could pick up any dictionary and look through it and you'll kind of see this, largely the definitions come from common use. Like we had talked about the word dude, mm-hmm. right? Um, we talked about the word will and would, right? Meaning kind of the same thing. Um, but, you know, I, I think there's really nowhere else to get definitions from um, other than a combination of the structure of the word and common use, like how it's actually used in society. And I think the a mistake that is easy to make is thinking that the you know, prefix, suffix, root, structure, will always make the word mean the same thing. Mm-hmm. That's actually not true. Um, and you can see that in not, not, in, not in the English language just only, but in every language, including the biblical languages, um, that, that word structure is not like math, where it always means the same thing. Words are used differently over time, and they're sometimes adopted to be used in a completely different way. Um, and the way that definitions are often discerned is looking at how they're most commonly used. And isn't that how we do our Bible study? When we look up a word in the original language, one of the first things we do is we look and see all the different places that it's used <laughs> and how it's used there. And that is how we sort of derive what the word actually means. And sometimes the usage of the word actually trumps the root of the word. <laughs> and I'm trying to remember an example off the top of my head, I can't. But I, I guess all that to say, um, there, there are fallacies of interpretation in which just looking at the root of the word, we think, oh, well, the word has always meant that and it always will mean that. And it could lead us to the wrong conclusion. Mm-hmm, we have mm-hmm. to look at how the word was actually being used when it was used. Yeah, I kind of take a, I think there's going to be a hybrid um, to some degree um, with, um, you know, with Bible study is to realize that a lot of times the evolution of the word um, was was that, but it's had an origin. So mm-hmm. even the common usage uh has a connection to in some way that origin of use. And so well, sure. um, I've seen the illustration of, of, of dust before 
uh, small, small particulate, you know, matter we call dust. We dust the shelves. Uh, and then, uh, you know, something else, like if, uh, if I would say that my friend in high school was so good at the piano, but that by his senior year, he dusted me, <laughs> meaning he blew me away. Right. Um, right. And I've seen, seen the illustration. I don't remember all the details of it, but the idea that, okay, here's like four or five different uses of the word dust, but they all have this in common. Okay. Well, that's where the root concept, that's sort of the, the root or the uh, stem from which these various flowers grew because one took this root idea and eventually expressed it in this social context. One took it over here in this context and developed it in this way. Um, and so it's still helpful for me to look at the actual etymology yeah. of the word and say how it broke down, what originally the concept was, was this. And then I can see, oh, wow, that's really neat. This is the concept that underpins the way that it was used in the passage. And I think people yeah. need to be, and this is, I caution, um, if I could put it this way, younger Bible students, um, uh, and I'm not just talking about Bible college students, but just people who want to, who want to dig into scripture to say, now, just be careful when you look into Strong's and you look up, oh, this word, what's, what is, what's the definition of this word? Well, they'll choose as the definition, like you say, the 15 uses of the word throughout scripture. And it's, and it's all these different things. And then you might, you might think, oh, well, I could pick one out. Oh, that one will really preach, you know, or that one. I like this <laughs> definition, so I'll stick it in the, in the passage because that's one that Strong's gave. Well, what Strong's is doing be is telling careful. you- that, Yeah, Strong's is telling you the different ways that it was used. My, my, my uh, advice to them is to say, now, stop and look over all of those usages and say, what's the common denominator? How are they related? What central concept- yeah connects them to give you an idea of the base or root idea of the word. Right. And, and I agree a hundred percent with mm -hmm. what you're saying there. But I think what I'm pointing out is slightly different where someone will look at the common use of a word and they'll see how it's commonly used. They'll find the common denominator, but they will ignore that <laughs> and instead look at the root of the word and they'll force the meaning of the root of the word mm -hmm. onto the interpretation of it in every sense. In fact, this has become common enough that it has become known, at least in Old Testament study, as the Hebrew root fallacy, where you force the meaning of the word onto it by deriving where the root originally came from and assuming that like math, the root has never changed. But that's just not how language works. We have to look at how the word is used over and over again to derive what its meaning is. Um, anyway, <laughs> that's that's interesting. I would um, I would want to do some study on that because I wonder if uh, just just wondering by the the title of the fallacy, if it's ever taken too far, uh, trying to say, you know that it's disconnected now from its root. And I would kind of push back against that to say well, that no, at some point no, it can it mean doesn't. something totally, totally different than what it originally meant. Well, it may seem like quite a, quite a, it might, it may seem like it's gone far <clears throat> afield, but it's still connected in some way. Well, yeah, sure. There'll always be a relationship, kind of like how we trace the word dude through multiple iterations in English mm -hmm. to a completely different meaning that it had originally. 
It is possible, and you have to acknowledge that it's possible. Not, not that it's always going to happen, but it is possible for a word to completely flip in its meaning and usage over time because of how language changes. So you can trace the original roots of words back. You can see the connection. You can the Etymologists do this. They'll see the connection of a word and find out how it became what it is. But that, mm-hmm. that doesn't discount the fact that it can happen, that a word can mean completely different things than it used to mean. Like the English word let, right? mm-hmm, for example, mm-hmm. uh, that we find in the New Testament, didn't mean the same thing 400 years ago that it means now. In fact, it meant opposite things. The same thing can happen in other languages as well. And we have to acknowledge that it does happen. So I don't think that anyone who uh, asserts not to my knowledge, uh, anyone who asserts that the Hebrew root fallacy exists and happens, they're not saying that there's never a connection between the word today and what the root originally was. There is a connection. Mm-hmm. It's just they're acknowledging that language can change over time. And those who don't acknowledge that are guilty of a fallacy known as the Hebrew root fallacy. But anyway, I don't want to get too far afield in that. I just thought it was interesting to, because when you think about it, where did Webster get his definitions from? Well, largely from looking at the structure of words, plus how they were used when they were spoken. And that's still how people get definitions today. Interesting. So yeah, and and then probably one thing, and maybe this kind of ties in with what you're saying, how it's used uh, is also the, um, and I don't, maybe I'm using this word wrong, the etymology of it. it's like here was the original word and then in French it was this and then in Latin it was this and then in English it was this and sort of tracing it through languages since obviously languages are borrowed you know we have a lot of you know words with Latin or Greek you know or since America especially the melting pot has a lot of words that are translate that are really borrowed from another language what did they mean there that's interesting etymology is fun yeah, it is. And, and I wonder if our listeners would maybe want to do some homework too. And if you can think of examples of words, not just in English, but in any language or biblical languages even, words that now are used in a different way today than they were when they were originally used and see if you can trace the relationship between them. If you come up with any examples, email them to us at reasontogetherpodcast at gmail.com. All right. I'm afraid we're going to have to uh, transition into the uh, after show uh, at this point. But thank you again for joining us. In, and uh, we hope that you have uh, a relaxing and refreshing uh, holiday time now. And I say this because maybe if Christmas has just passed and you're listening, but you're looking forward to maybe another day off at New Year's, which why they call that a holiday, honestly, I think. I don't know, it's just a cover. But anyway, um, hope, hopefully during this vacation time, um, you uh, you have a good time of refreshing and a good time with your family. The Lord bless you, and uh, thanks again for listening. We're encouraging balance, developing perspective, and connecting faith to practice. This is Reason Together. <laughs>